Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Hey, adapters. Yes, something is happening here and something very historic. On today's Earth Day themed episode, I have Valerie Aquino, co-director of the March for Science Organizing Committee. Also in the episode, I have Dr. Nancy Knowlton, who is the organizer of the Earth Optimism Summit that's going to be occurring on Earth Day. And finally, I have Dr. Randy Olson, who's going to come on, and he's a filmmaker and an author and a former scientist. And he's going to talk about, especially with the Science March, what this all means, what's the historic nature, and what's sort of the future of science. And it's going to be an exciting episode. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. I'm very excited about this episode. This is about the March for Science, that huge event. Valerie's going to explain sort of the history behind the, the march, the logistics of the march, and uh, what they're hoping to accomplish, what they hope to accomplish afterwards. And also I have Dr. Nancy Knowlton on, and she's going to talk about the Earth Optimism Summit, which is actually occurring on the same time frame as the march. You know, Earth Day is April 22nd, and their summit is the uh, – 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and the march is on the 22nd. And so they're both based in D.C., so they're very complementary to, toward each other. And I talked to both Valerie and Nancy about that. And these are two very positive things that are occurring celebrating science. And so we dig into those issues. Also, to wrap things up, I asked Dr. Randy Olson, who's a science communicator, filmmaker, author, to come on and talk about what this all means. I, I don't think people appreciate the truly historic nature of this March for Science. Scientists coming out and, you know, this isn't an anti-Trump rally or anti-Trump protest. This is scientists coming out and celebrating science. And I, probably in the history of science, there's never been such a, a huge event to to showcase these things. So, so that's very exciting. And this episode is all about that, focusing on the positives of science. Okay, some housekeeping. If you are new to the podcast, this podcast is a climate change podcast, and I talk to experts. I've had Dr. Michael Mann on. I've had Andy Revkin, former New York Times reporter, now with ProPublica. I have academics on. I have reporters on. I have art critics on. And we talk about climate change and adaptation. It's a big issue, and it's only going to get bigger. And I, I like to think we have these really fun but informative conversations around this topic. So please consider subscribing. Also consider sharing on your phone. You know, you're sitting there, you got the phone in your hand right now. Just share it on your social media, giving people a heads up, and especially in, in regards to the logistics of these events, this March for Science. There's a lot of information in this episode. So please get the word out. Also, future guests coming up, speaking of marches, we have the Climate March on April 29th, and I have an incredible guest coming on, Bill McKibben from 350.org, famed environmentalist. He's going to talk about the march. That was a very exciting conversation, and that'll be out next Monday. And I have national security covered. I have Judge Alice Hill, formerly of the Obama White House and the National Security Council. I have Andrew Lewin, Speak Up for Blue, Ocean Conservation Podcast. And we have a new segment that's coming out, and that should premiere in the next couple of weeks, and it's Australia Daps. And it'll be a short segment, and I have an Australia host, and she's going to be talking to Australian adaptation experts about what's going on with climate change over in Australia. So please stick around for that. Uh, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. So please consider joining America Adapts. Just search for that and Twitter at USA Adapts. 
please tweet me. I like to tweet back. And uh, there, my, I have a website, americadaps.org, if you want to learn more about the previous guests and the show notes and learn a bit more about me and my background. It's all there on the website, and you can contact me at americaadapts at gmail.com. I love hearing from folks. It's the highlight of my week, and if you have you know recommendations for guests or if you had just insight on previous podcasts, I love hearing from you. Please take the time. Okay, on that note, I'm sure you want – us to jump right into these conversations. And so Valerie Aquino, Dancy, Dr. Nancy Knowlton, and Randy Olson, please stick around. Welcome back, Adapters. We have a really cool episode today. On the show, I have Valerie Aquino. Valerie's a PhD candidate at the University of New Mexico. And then this is the really cool thing. She's co-director of the March for Science. Hey, Valerie, how are you? Hi, Doug. I'm well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes. And so we're going to be talking about the March for Science. And I, I want you, I think people are just fascinated by what, what's happened here. And so like two months ago, there was no such thing as a March for Science. And now <laughs> we're about a month away from basically the largest mass event ever organized by scientists for scientists. And so I want you to take, you know, my listeners through this, this story. It's an incredible story. Oh, wow. Thanks for reminding me. That's right. It's coming up in about a month or so. All right. right. Don't forget. Don't forget about it. Okay. Put in your calendar. <laughs> April 22nd. Right. Um, right. So this happened, this started across various social media platforms semi-simultaneously around the weekend of January 21st. And there were multiple conversations happening independently. And there was something on Reddit. There was something on Twitter. There was something on Facebook. So my fellow co-chairs, Jonathan Berman and Caroline Weinberg, they came together because Jonathan had bought this URL for the March for Science, the original one, which has now been replaced to a more updated version. But so he made the original one and hooked up with Caroline because he clearly recognized that there was such overwhelming support for it that he needed a lot more help. And then on the Facebook end of it, I was in what's now the, the quote-unquote secret Facebook group that initially only had a few dozen people to start. And then by the next day, there were tens of thousands of people. And then within, you know, the next day after that, it was half a million. And so we definitely saw this explosion, uh, this exponential growth within the first several days of launching any of the social media accounts. For for me, the timing you had the the women's march and the this all sort of exploded before the the actual women's march occurred though, right? Oh, it was after the after women's day. march. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, resonated with a lot of people as far as seeing the the impact uh, and the powerful public demonstration around you know because they had sister marches and weren't just doing a march in Washington D.C. And so there was a lot of inspiration and energy that came out of that effort. Um, and then when some people were talking about, well, hmm, why don't scientists march on Washington, science supporters, uh, it really latched on. It really resonated, not just in the United States, but around the globe. We now have almost 400 satellite cities that are marching in solidarity with the march on Washington, D.C. for April 22nd. So we've definitely seen this touch a nerve all over the world. 
Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you're a science historian in any way, but can you think of anything equivalent of science kind of organizing to sort of justify itself, to sort of promote itself, I guess, in history? I mean, this is truly a unique event. Well, I am an anthropologist, and so I actually say thousands of years of human history and cultural change, and I'm trying to think right now of a similar moment where hundreds, potentially hundreds of thousands, if not more, will be gathering together uh, to voice and champion science, and I can't think of anything quite offhand. Well, that must just be fascinating for you is that, uh, like you said, there was a couple sources, but ultimately, like, you know, the, there was a Reddit post that's going to lead to all these people congregating in these different places. I mean, that really is kind of remarkable. Yeah, it's definitely been really powerful. We've been getting so much support from so many diverse areas around the world, from so many diverse groups and types of communities. So we definitely see um, something that, like I said, is resonating with, with people all over. Some of these things, it, it, you're never quite sure how they kind of organize themselves. And so you're a PhD student at the University of New Mexico. I mean, really, how, how did you get involved? I mean, you're a co-chair, one of three co-chairs. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, how did ultimately, with that decision, was that made really quickly? A lot of our decisions have to be made really quickly with the type of grassroots organizing and kind of a rapidly approaching deadline that's involved. But yeah, so when I first started, I was actually uh, an admin for the public page. And then I helped with our diversity committee, as well as with crafting our mission statement, our vision, our goals and principles. And within, I would say, four or five days into my involvement, the other two co-chairs, Jonathan and Caroline, um, interviewed me and then asked me to step in as their third and fellow co-chair. And so then, you know, since then I've worn a lot more hats than, than just the Facebook page and the diversity and mission teams. So it's been a, it's been a lot of work. I probably spend 18 plus hours on this every single day, no weekends oh, for wow. me. Um, yes, it's, it's been worth it though. It's been absolutely galvanizing. So you are in the final stages of getting your PhD. Is your PhD committee cutting you some slack? Yes. <laughs> maybe I should have asked that. I thought for sure they'd be like, of course, but maybe not. You know, they can be, you know, hard on you. Okay. Well. Well, good. no, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I did have a meeting with my uh, primary advisor. I have two co-chairs for my committee because my research bridges anthropology as well as the earth and planetary sciences. So I spoke with my primary chair in the anthropology department and he, he definitely understood my motivations and my desire to prioritize the March for Science organizing and postponing my own graduation by just a few months is really not that large of a sacrifice, you know, relative to the impact that hopefully this march can bring. Well, I would hope the University of New Mexico looks at this as like a, a something very positive for them. I, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> okay. So you've mentioned the Facebook page, and now the last time I looked, and I remember when all started unfolding, I got one of those sort of invite to like this page, and I remember when I first got it, I'm just like, what's this about, huh, the science march? I just went to the women's march. And so <laughs> it's now up to 850,000 people. That is tremendous, and it, it must be a beast. It must. You Do you have a group of people that handles it? I mean, how, how do you operate that Facebook page? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the Facebook group, um, has about what you said, 840 to 850,000 members. The public page has 
over 420,000 likes um, or follows. And then our Twitter account has about 350,000. And then there's a Reddit and there's an Instagram. And I don't know how many of those membership overlap with each other. But, you know, I would I would probably safely say it's, it's about a million or, or more members. And it's it's a it's a huge beast, but it's a, it's a great responsibility. <laughs> There's a lot of dedicated volunteers. This is an all volunteer led effort, and we're all passion project volunteers. So you know nobody is paying us to do this. Nobody is necessarily expecting full time work from every single person involved. But there is a skeleton crew that's basically treating this like a full time employment. And just been amazing how many people want to help. Well, what is really cool about the the group, the 850,000 group, is as you go through it, people are going on and they're basically, a lot of them are just introducing themselves and they're saying, this is why I'm marching for science or this is the science that I do. And so it's going to be this, you know, hopefully library just heading into the future that people can reference. Oh, those are some of my most favorite stories are the ones that talk about why science is an important, you know, value to them and how science has impacted their lives and talking about why they march for science. Those have been really amazing. And we have a project uh, as well as other satellite organizers from other cities to highlight some of those amazing stories into a book project or another digital project. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to talk about the logistics about the march. What can people really expect from the march? They're, they're showing up, but I mean, what re- really is happening there? And I know you have a website. People can go learn more there, but kind of describe how do you see that day unfolding? Sure. A lot of that stuff uh, constantly is still in flux. But what I can say for sure is that we're going to, on the D.C. event, we will be co-hosting that with Earth Day Network, um, again, specifically just for the D.C. event. It will start with a rally at the National Mall, and that will have several really large teach-in tents. And we plan to have about 18 or so teach-in tents with sessions uh, running about an hour each. And then we will have main stage programming with speakers um, from all over the speakers that represent different disciplines and different organizations, not just scientists, although we'll, we'll, of course, have scientists, but we'll also have science communicators and science educators and other people who have started scientific services. So we'll have a really full day. That starts at, people can start congregating at the National Mall at 8 in the morning on April 22nd. And then the programming will run through about 3 in the afternoon. Then we'll have a march. And then we have some evening activities planned in association with the March for Science as well, as well as other events preceding and post-march. So the reality is that a lot of the people who are going to show up for this march aren't actually scientists, so it is a great opportunity to actually learn what scientists do. I'm sure that's probably part of your goal. Oh, absolutely. We really want to show how science is important to everybody's lives, that science is everywhere and affects everyone. And so some of the teaching tents will have interactive activities. They will be focused on education as well as connecting the education and interactive activity with a specific tangible action that the participants can take moving forward. Okay. And so uh, I went to the Women's March and it was really this positive feel-good event, but a lot of people interpreted it as a 
big protest against Trump. And so you guys must have that same concern. I know on your website you really lay out these things, but do you, do you have those concerns that ultimately it'll just be viewed as an anti-Trump rally? I do have concerns that it will be viewed as just an anti-Trump rally. Of course, there's going to be, as I said, so many diverse types of organizations participating, as well as people from all over the world. We have a really large tent that covers why science is important to people. So although it is not an anti-Trump rally, we expect that there might be that sentiment being expressed. Um, but also, this March for Science is being held in locations all over the globe, so it's beyond the boundaries of the United States, it's beyond the boundaries of any one kind of organization or group. And again, you know, the, the ultimate value here is how science plays a critical role in our societies and that we need to defend and champion when there is an erosion of scientific legitimacy and scientific consensus being maligned or scientific interest being silenced. It seems like every week there's some sort of new, I guess, drama in Washington. And so what came out a couple days ago that I think plays into your march is that we saw the president's budget and it was pretty severe and basic science takes a huge hit. So I'm sure that's probably talked about as part of this march. And so I, I want, how are you seeing the march as an opportunity, again, not to be an anti-Trump rally, but, uh, but in this budget, there's a, an attack on science. Do you see a role for the march? So the official March for Science position on this draconian budget proposal is that we think these proposed budget cuts would lead to a disastrous stay on scientific and technological research and innovation in America and by exchange worldwide. They would endanger our safety, the health of our planet and our ability to compete in a global marketplace. Um, it ignores the critical role that scientific research plays in our lives, our communities and the economy. Well, it's good you have a consistent message. And I, what I would suggest, and again, you don't want this to turn into an anti-Trump rally. There's going to be plenty of those. But who knows? Maybe it's an opportunity because as this unfolds, it's going to take a little bit of time that all these people are in town. They, it's an opportunity for them to actually go to Congress. Congress ultimately is the one who actually funds it. His is only sort of a series of recommendations. And so I don't know if you guys are at all encouraging people to say, visit your congressperson and talk about the role of science out there because they're all going to be in town. It might be a really great opportunity. Oh, absolutely. We're working right now on action plans with specific items that we want to implement in response to this budget proposal, which would include asking our supporters to support these agencies and to call their representatives and write op-eds and visit town hall meetings, you know, starting from local all the way to the federal level. Okay, so one other thing is that the history of the, the science march wasn't as smooth as, let's say, the women's march. And, you know, soon after this idea came really explode in popularity, there was a, and you know where I'm going with this, there was a New York Times column from uh, Dr. Robert Young, I think it's Western Carolina, sort of questioning the purpose of the march. And so when that came out, I don't know how far along you were in that process, but, you know, what kind of conversations did you, the organizers, really have? Oh, uh, you're talking about science being political? Is that well, the... Well, well, this, he wrote a, a column in the New York Times basically saying there isn't a need for this march. And he, he was very polite about it, but it was it just got a lot of attention. But what you're saying is politicizing science and should the march occur? And I've, I'm just I guess maybe there wasn't even discussion about the column. But I've seen those debates. Uh, I was part of one when I did my interview with the current, um, which is a Canadian radio show. But the thing is that staying silent isn't effective. 
and neutrality isn't an option to protect the relationship between science and society. We've had profound concerns with anti-science narratives, and of course science denialism isn't a new problem. Actually, more often than not, it's been the norm throughout history, as has scientists sticking up for their research and its application to society. Well, I just kind of was kind of funny. You had a scientist who was questioning the need for the science march and leave it to the scientists to have peer review the march. <laughs> they have to peer review. That is important. Right. And so but hopefully your march comes out stronger because you had that peer review or. <laughs> no, we absolutely we have, you know, been open and listening to the believe it or not, to the, you know, the 840,000 people commenting in the Facebook group to all of our partner representatives. And we have close to 100 organizations partnered with us now with even more coming in the coming weeks. And we're listening to to everybody. Okay, so just a few more questions for you. But I've heard this idea committee. And what's that all about? Oh, so IDEA stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Accessibility. And that's a very important to us, we want to integrate idea issues and considerations among all aspects of our planning and in our leadership. So the march happens. It, you know, it's a big success. The weather's perfect. You have huge crowds. Then what? Then what is a great question, but we are uh, already making plans to look ahead. We've been planning a lot of the march and the associated events affiliated with the march with a long-term vision in mind. So we, one of the things that we want to do is having a week of action right after the march that just hits people with something that they can do every single day. And whether it's an environmental call to action, whether it's something about writing an op-ed about an issue they care about the most, to public health issues, to human rights issues, to all kinds of things in which science does play a role. And then beyond that, we're hoping to make this a lasting movement and organization. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know the history of Earth Day, and I don't know if they were just planning one off, but here we are, and it's still going. So maybe something equivalent for a, a, a science day or science march. We want to definitely make this a long-lasting movement that does not end on April 22nd, but continues and emphasizes scientific education and literacy, as well as promoting scientific advocacy and being an engaged citizen. Well, and yeah, your social media, the, the, the numbers that you have on those, I mean, that's just, that's such a resource now. And I'm sure it's been something you use now, but just going forward to make sure you harness that. Uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity. And I hope it gets even bigger. Oh, very true. There's what, 330 million people in the U.S.? You yeah, there's, there's a lot more out there. I hope that they all join us. I hope everybody participates in some fashion. Okay, a couple last things here. So logistics information, anything you want to share? Someone's listening to this and is planning to attend the event. Any Anything that you, you want to share with them? We are working on publishing a pledge for March participants to take. And so when that comes out, we expect that everybody who wants to participate in a March for Science around the world will take that pledge. And we are also working on different plans to make the march as accessible and as safe as possible. And so that includes having a virtual march for people who can't physically participate in the march, as well as providing meeting points during uh, during the day of the march with, with when we have more information on the route that will be coming. 
other than that, and bring lots of water and snacks. <laughs> right. There aren't a lot of food options on the mall. And so things like what trains to take and all that, that'll just be on the website because I can put the website on my show notes and everything, right? Are you? Yeah, including? we're trying to do a, a FAQ here pretty soon. I, that's actually a good thing that you mentioned because for those who will be in D.C., um, I would probably suggest getting a Metro card earlier than the day of the march so that there wouldn't be such long lines and maybe cause some delays in people getting to the location on time. And wearing layers. I don't know what the weather will be like. You know, we expect this to be a very peaceful and powerful day. Oh, please say the weather's going to be nice. It's a month out, so. <laughs> I know. Nice. I hope it don't get rained out or anything. But in case that it does, we still will be planning alternatives. So don't don't worry. <laughs> Well, Valerie, I, I'm going to wrap it up here, but I just, first of all, I just want to thank you. I know you, you're kind of pausing on your, your, your PhD a little bit and what you're doing is just an amazing thing. And I think, you know, the energy that's, uh, the energy that came out of the Women's March was amazing. And I just imagine for science, it's going to be, you know, equal and just want to thank you for, for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And, and I want to thank everybody who's been involved in trying to see this be a success. Uh, it, it wouldn't be done without everybody. And I want to extend an invitation because I think what happens afterwards is probably more important than the march itself. And so maybe get you on three months or something after the march and just say, what what did you think of the event and what's going on now? And I think people would be very curious to say, okay, are we taking advantage of this? So I'm going to extend that invitation. Oh, I would love to take you up on it. That sounds terrific. I can't wait to talk about it post-march. All right, fantastic. I'm looking. I live in D.C. and I will be there with, with my children. So. Oh good, um, oh good, 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 good. I'm glad that you're bringing your kids. We want we want that to be a welcoming and safe environment for everyone. Fantastic. Well, the, the challenge will be for them to come up with a clever sign. That's what marches are for. So. <laughs> we can help with some ideas. Uh, we're going to have a web repository of downloadable signs and PDFs coming up soon too. Well, my eight-year-old draws a mean black hole, so I might encourage you ah, to go that direction. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. You'll have to show me. Thank <laughs> you, right. guys. Well, thank you so much. And everybody out there, I will have the the Facebook links and all the, the website links. If, if you haven't really figured the, these things out yet, I'll, how you want to, if you want to come to the event. So on that note, thanks for listening. This is America Daps. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Valerie Aquino. What an exciting event, the March for Science. Please stick around. I have Dr. Nancy Knowles to talk about the Earth Optimism Summit, and then Randy Olson will be on afterwards to talk about these two events. Please stick around. Hi, Adapters. Welcome back. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the Earth Optimism Summit. And here to give us some details is Dr. Nancy Knowlton, SANT Chair for Marine Science at National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institute. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Doug. How are you? Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. So I was thinking about this. I could have a whole episode with you just talking about your background in marine science, but we're not going to do that today. We're going to be talking about this Earth Optimism Summit. So I just want to jump right into it. What is the Earth Optimism Summit? Maybe tell a little bit of the story behind it. Sure. Well, the Earth Optimism Summit is, is a big gathering. It's kind of like a brain trust of about 200 uh, speakers and about 1,200 participants. And the idea is really to focus on success. So much of conservation has really traditionally been doom and gloom. It's almost like we're addicted to crisis. And over the course of a couple of decades, we've actually kind of lost track of the fact that we're making real progress. And in fact, a lot of the successes we've had have been almost well-kept secrets. And so the idea behind the summit is to really change the conversation about 
conservation from doom and gloom to one of success and opportunity. And so we were kind of challenging people to have an open mind, come to the summit, uh, listen to these amazing stories of success, and be inspired to take those stories back to where you live and work and see what you can do to make the planet sustainable. I'm going to dig in a little bit more about what the summit's all about, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, how long has this idea even been around? I mean, was this your idea? Was this sort of, did it come out of something else? Where did the sort of kernel of all this came from? Yeah, it is my idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in the sense that certainly the, I, the concept of doing this at the Smithsonian to, it's, it's part of a larger conservation commons launch that we're having. We're, trying to bring all the different kinds of conservation we do here at the Smithsonian together. And this is our one of our ways of, of launching that decision and, and determination under the Conservation Commons. But the idea of optimism actually goes back to when I was uh, with my husband, uh, Jeremy Jackson. We were teaching a class at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And we uh, it was on marine biodiversity and conservation, and we'd always begin the class with this state of state of the oceans lectures, like three days of incredibly depressing information about all the bad things that are happening to the ocean. And we came to realize that we're in a sense running something like medical school for the ocean, but all we were doing was training our students to write ever more refined obituaries, and uh, and so that and so and thinking that you know medical school you know you don't train your students to write obituaries typically. So we thought, well, let's go beyond the obituaries. So we started running these these uh, meetings called Beyond the Obituaries, focusing on success in ocean conservation. And then there are actually other people around the world who had similarly realized that doom and gloom was pretty, well, really non-motivating, especially in large doses. And so we got together and actually launched a Twitter campaign called Ocean Optimism, hashtag Ocean Optimism, Mm. that we did that about two and a half years ago in 2014. And it's since reached over 70 million, probably 75 million Twitter accounts. (laughs) And that was with nobody paying us any money to do it. It was just a kind of organic growth because people were really hungry to find out what's working. And so it was because of the success of ocean optimism that we decided to try to basically cover the whole planet and uh, go for earth optimism. Now, what what did you just say? People are addicted to crisis. Is that what you said earlier? Well, I think especially in the conservation mm-hmm. community. I mean, when you think about the sort of history of the modern conservation movement, say, thinking about going back to the first Earth Day in 1970, that was inspired by an oil spill. It was a time when, you know, rivers were burning. It was it was an environmental crisis. I remember being a graduate student and in Los Angeles, you couldn't see down the block and your eyes would burn when you breathe. Mm. There were just a lot of problems. And 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 that's really how the whole field of conservation was born out of this recognition that there's all these problems and they're getting worse and we had to do something about it. But the result has been sort of an addiction to telling people about all the bad things to scare them into doing something. And, you know, it, it seemed, I think, logical at the times. And, it, and, and of course, you do have to, people do have to be aware of problems in order to want to solve them. But social scientists have actually known for a really long time, if you Take, give, you just present a huge problem to people without any solutions. It causes them to tune out. It leads to apathy, not action. And, and so in a sense, by focusing so much on the bad news, we basically convinced the entire plant, you know, the, the population of the planet that not only were we doomed, but there wasn't anything we could do about it. 
it's really the idea of, of recognizing it. First of all, that doesn't work. Secondly, there are a whole lot of successes out there and we haven't been paying attention to them. And that's really the motivation for the whole thing. Well, I don't know how much you know about my podcast, America Adapts, but I do try to emphasize the more positive stories of how we're adapting to climate change. So a lot of my guests that come on are these proactive people. These are the things that we're doing in response to climate change. So I, I can appreciate that overall message around Earth optimism. On that note, though, I do have to ask that let, and, and I know you have to be careful with the politics of it all, but we have a new administration and I think a lot of people aren't feeling optimistic. So what, what do you, I guess, talk about or as you communicate this event? I mean, it's a new thing these last couple of months. It's new administration. So how are you kind of responding to people's, I guess, apprehensiveness of what's going on, especially in the environmental issues? Well, it's, it's true that people, a lot of people in the field of, who, who dedicate their lives to conservation or, or are just interested as committed citizens in conservation. There are a lot of people, you'd have to be living on another planet to rec- to fail to recognize that some people are really, really concerned. But I, I guess the, the idea here is that these, as I, as I said before, the, nature's been in trouble for a really long time. And at the same time, we're, we're making progress. We have these successes to report. So I feel that if all we do is sort of talk about the things that we disagree about and said, and, and lose track of what's working and what's successful, then I think we're missing the point of what conservation is all about. Yeah, I wonder just, especially when it comes to funding for conservation issues, when you do emphasize crises, I think a lot of foundations and other groups are sort of geared toward, all right, how to respond to these crises. And has there sort of been that attempt to try to focus more on the sort of optimistic stories? But it sounds like you've gotten quite a bit of support for what you're doing with the summit. So that's, that's an encouraging sign. Yeah, I have to say people, one of the nice things, I mean, it's true that sometimes we get we get some pushback about the whole concept of earth optimism. People say, how can you possibly be optimistic? You know, everything's terrible. But on the other hand, I'd say the, the vast majority of people that we talk to say, oh, that is a really good idea. Uh, we've got to start focusing on what's working, what's succeeding, rather than just talking about, about our failures. So you have to, it's a, it's a fine line. It's sort of, you know, you don't, on the one hand, we're not trying to say, I mean, the one thing we're definitely not doing we're not telling people to go celebrate that the world's in great shape and everything's solved and we don't have to worry about it anymore. That, you know, that's a kind of Pollyanna approach and that's completely opposite of what we're trying to do. What we're, what we're trying to do is, is say, yes, there's, there's a problem, but there's also, in fact, there are a number of problems, but there are also solutions out there. In fact, not just solutions. There are people who have used those solutions and made things better. And it's time to start listening to the people who who have actually succeeded in making things better, learn from them, be inspired by them, and and then act on that information. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other issues that are going to be going around the summit, but you know maybe a little more details about the summit itself. And so I was looking over your agenda, and it's an amazing agenda, and I'm just curious of the stories of how you recruited people. But uh, I, I see that you have Andy Revkin and Randy Olson that are on the agenda. And I just like to acknowledge this. We're two previous guests on this podcast. And so, yeah, yeah, you uh, are, it's some all-stars that you're recruiting there. And how did you do it? It's definitely a team effort. I didn't, uh, and, you know, because I'm a marine biologist, I know a lot more about successes in the marine world than I do about, say, stuff that's going on the land and conservation. But as I said, this is a Smithsonian effort. So the Smithsonian has conservation scientists working in all sorts of different areas. And then moreover, it's not just a Smithsonian effort. We have a lot of partners 
uh, both uh, in terms of the big environmental nonprofits, but also a lot of the small ones around the world and federal agencies and, and where we, in areas where we felt we didn't have the expertise, we reached out uh, to people to help us. For example, I've definitely gotten some wonderful help and advice in terms of recruiting people in the business world, uh, in the world of finance, uh, in the world of renewable energy, which are not areas that the Smithsonian specifically works on to any great extent. And so this is the whole idea of this is this, the Smithsonian is, is really thinks of itself as a, among, among its, the many things it does. Of course, we're museums and uh, research organizations, but we're also conveners and we're kind of a neutral, nonpartisan place where people can come together talk about things, share ideas, and work together for common goals. And so this is really not only a team effort within the Smithsonian, but it's a really a team effort across the planet. Again, with some of the speakers that you have, I, I recognize quite a few names, and I think at another potential conference, they could have a very, I guess, urgent or more dire message. And so what was the kind of framework that you suggested to them? You're obviously not telling what people to present, but you're like, they get that this is a summit that's supposed to be optimistic. Did you give any sort of like, okay, here are the basic ground rules, or do you have a sense that they're just going to do that anyway? Of course, we don't tell people what to talk about, but but everybody who we've reached out to be in this event has totally, it almost required no explanation. They, They recognize that that this is about talking about solutions and things that are working and successes. Uh, that's, as I say, that's not to say there's, we expect them to stand up and be Pollyanna, uh, about the problems, but the idea is to, you know, all the talks are, there's some, there's some panels and discussions, that kind of format, but there are also a lot of what I call sort of TED style talks where people stand up for 12 minutes. And you know, in that 12 minutes, you know, the whole idea is instead of spending, say, eight minutes on all the problems, you know, set the stage relatively quickly because people know what the outlines of the problems and then really focus on the successes and, and the stories of the success. So what we've tried to do is not only choose areas where we think progress is, has been made and is being made, but also choose people we know who can tell the story of that success uh, in a compelling way, because we want our, this is a very broad audience and we want people to come away in, inspired and motivated to, to take that information and, and use it back in there where they work and, and live. Okay. And so as you are in the middle of planning this, is, and I'm sure you're looking forward to this being done in many ways, <laughs> a giant, giant curveball was thrown your way. And you know what I'm talking about is the Science March on April 22nd, smack dab right in the middle of the Earth Optimism Summit. So what were your thoughts when you first heard that was happening? Well, we had a little bit of pre-advanced warning that this might happen. So we kind of got our, we kind of got ourselves used to the idea that it might happen. And then so when it did happen, we said, okay, it's happening. But, and, you know, it's, they're they're complementary events, I I guess I would have to say. They're not, they're not meant to compete with each other. They're, they're really different. I mean, what we're doing is, you know, bringing together some of like a brain trust of all these people who know so much about how to make the world a better place because they've actually done it and share those messages of success. And the people that are in the audience or who will watch it in live streaming or watch it later, for example, on video on demand, will be able to listen to it and, and be inspired by it and use it. Uh, that's kind of so what we're doing is kind of conveying, if you will, the, the message of success. Uh, the Science March is 
all about action and demonstrating that the commitment to science. And in fact, that commitment to science is a completely shared commitment. The Smithsonian has been doing science for, for a very, very long time and science is in our DNA. So we share the unambiguous and unequivocal commitment to the importance of science and the role that science plays in ser- serving society and solving problems. It's just two different sides of the coin, if you will, about how we're demonstrating that. In our case, we're sharing information and, and the message of success. And the, the science march is about marching and showing, you know, physically by bodies on the street. So different people, you know, the, the two ways of sh- of supporting science. Some will, uh, you know, some people, I I think a lot of people actually would like to have, be able to split their bodies in half and be able to do both. (laughs) But since that's not possible, different people will choose different ways that they want to show their support for science. But I I completely view them as complementary. And the other thing I would say is that while the, you know, there are limited, you know, there are 1,200 seats in the in the Ronald Reagan building where it's going to take place. There are lots of public events around Washington that this optimism summit is supporting. And we're going to have lots of uh, displays and demonstrations. We're inviting a variety of organizations and uh, companies to bring hands-on examples of the, their products, which make the planet a more sustainable place. So there's actually, you know, having however many hundred thousand people might be wandering around marching for science, they'll also be able to march over to the Earth Optimism Summit, if you will, and enjoy some of the stuff that's uh, out there for the public to really learn from. Well, I guess, too, what is going to be different is I imagine since there's so many more people and the media is going to be covering the march probably in a much bigger way, but they risk that others will define what their message is, even if they put a lot of thought into what the march is all about. And I know they're working on that now, whereas hopefully your event, you have a bit more control as you deal with the media of like, what are you trying to say here? And you you get what I'm saying is that they might have less control of how they are being perceived. So, you know, potentially an opportunity for you that this emphasis on being optimistic on in all things. Well, yeah, we are. This is an event that we're hosting and we definitely, and it's not a crowdsourced event in the sense that, you know, we're just letting anyone can take care of, you know, control the message. This is a, this is a, you know, the Earth Optimism Summit does have a very, very clear message. And that is that, uh, yes, there are problems, but there are also solutions and those solutions are being implemented around the world and we have to pay attention to them so that we can learn from them. And scale them up and replicate them. That's a very, it's a very clear message that we have. It's, and it's a completely nonpartisan message, I would add. Uh, you know, there are a number of the solutions that, that we're going to be presented here that have, you know, that, that come from across the different spaces. I mean, some of them are coming from large companies that, you know, sort of for-profit solutions that, uh, investment in venture capital and big business. We have coming to the summit the mayor of Georgetown, Texas. And if you watch him on, you can watch him on YouTube. You know, he's, he says, I'm not doing this because I, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal. I'm doing this because I've made Georgetown a renewable energy a success story because it makes operating Georgetown less expensive. It helps me pay my bills and the, and the citizens of Georgetown to pay their bills. So it doesn't have to be partisan. In fact, it's conservation success will never take place unless it is actually non 
partisan in terms of creating the solutions that it, that work in a variety of different contexts. So I imagine that Saturday will be a little bit tricky, and I, I guess unless you lock the door when they come in at the beginning, um, there, there's going to probably be that in and out that people are wanting going out to that margin. It's probably just logistically too hard, but I could just see you know that sort of open house to people at the march want to come in to listen. But I mean, I know you can't do that, but it just seems like. Here is this interesting message occurring as all these people are marching, and I'm sure it's a message that a lot of them really would probably be interested in hearing. And, and it sounds like you said that there's these other events, but just yeah, live streaming some of the presentation, but just getting that word out. It seems like just a nice opportunity with a group of people exponentially larger coming in from the summit. Yeah, I, I, we view it, you know, as I say, it was, I don't know, curveball is quite the right word, but it, it did cause us to, we spent several, you know, serious time thinking about, okay, there are going to be all these people in Washington. What does that mean for this event, which we, of course, planned, started planning long before the, the March on, uh, March for Science. And I, I think we've come up with a, you know, a strategy that takes advantage of the enthusiasm of all these people for science. And we can use those people to amplify the message that science actually has helped solve uh, a number of these conservation challenges that we've faced. So, I, as I say, I, I view them as complementary. There are some logistic challenges, but overall, the messages are, you know, the, the, we have the shared message of the importance of science and then the complementary ways of kind of responding to that shared message. Just logistically speaking, I'm just <laughs> remind the attendees to get on the metro early because I'm sure there'll be some competition. <laughs> On that Saturday, at least. Yeah, well, fortunately, we start earlier than the marchers, I think. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, as a D.C. resident, uh, you you plan ahead. Uh, absolutely. A, the Women's March was – I went, and it was absolutely, you know, crazy. But, I mean, it all worked out well, but it was just, yeah, you got to plan ahead. Yeah. I want to wrap things up, but I wanted to ask you, besides, you know, getting a stiff drink and taking some time off, what is your ultimate goal for uh, what do you hope to accomplish at the summit? And I'm sort of thinking right when the summit's done, and then what do you hope will happen post-summit? Okay, so what we hope in terms of the, the summit itself is really to change the conversation about conservation. The idea is to make, is to demonstrate that yes, there are problems, but there are also solutions, and if we grow those solutions, we can make the planet a much better place, not only for the for the planet, but also for us, for people. I mean, and that's I think a critical component. And but the summit is not a one-off event. It's, the idea is to keep this focus on success and using those successes to grow more successes. That's a long-term commitment that we have at the Conservation Commons at the Smithsonian, and so. Uh, as I mentioned, everything is going to be recorded. It's all going to be put, uh, made available on the, on the Earth Optimism, uh, website. And then over the course of the next year, we're going to be creating an actually an even larger, more powerful and exciting, robust framework for sharing these messages of success. Uh, something like an Earth Optimism portal. It will not only allow people to find successes either geographically in terms of where they live, but, but or in terms of types of success, say if you're interested in the oceans or you're interested in poaching or if you're interested in conservation uh, strategies for business. So you could search by a variety of different ways. And then we also hope to be able to use that, that, that virtual framework to provide a kind of community for people who want to talk to each other and share lessons they've learned in terms of what they've been trying to do. So, 
And that will have a, that's going to be a long-term legacy. We're also hoping to raise money for Earth Optimism Conservation Commons Fellows uh, to support people who are working on uh, solutions and applying and growing solutions. And then if we survive this one, <laughs> 2020 is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And so wow. we're hoping to have a Earth Day. And this time, this one was, this has been a challenge. People, people said to us, you can't possibly do this in a little over a year. And they weren't quite right, but there was a, <laughs> there was a grain of truth in that advice. I'm really glad we didn't wait a year. I mean, I think this right now is when we need to be doing this. But the one in 2020, obviously, we'll have a little bit more time to work on and that we're really excited about as well. So this is, this is the beginning of a project, not a, just a one time event. Well, I'm planning to take the podcast to the event and hoping to do these micro podcasts with attendees and speakers there. So I'm excited about that. But I, I do want to extend an invitation to you that you come back on maybe three months, six months after the summit. And we just have a conversation about some of those things that you said should be happening to kind of have follow up on the event. So I want to offer that to you. Yeah. And I would say you're going to find an amazing number of things that you can talk to people about in terms of talk in the actual successes we've achieved. So you know, there are going to be people talking about everything from reintroducing species uh, that were extinct in the wild to uh, amazing solutions in, to say, restoring habitats, protecting habitats, educational initiatives, social uh, media initiatives, finance, business. There And oh, there are going to be, there's, I have to say, um, I've learned so much from organizing this just because even though it's been my business to sort of pay attention to success and learn about every new one that, you know, crosses my desk, it's not, there's not a day that goes by that where I don't find out about something I didn't know about. And, and so I, th- I think the really one of the most striking things is that even within the field of conservation, so people who are, who do this for a living, most of us are largely under, unaware of the scale and scope of what we've accomplished. And so if nothing else, we and the general public and policymakers will have a much better appreciation that success is not only possible, but it's, it's being achieved right now. And, and that's really exciting to me because, you know, as I wander around, I tell people, did you know this? Did you know that? You know, it just is, and almost always the answer is no, I had no idea. So hopefully at the end of the summit, people have an idea and I'd, I'd be thrilled to come talk to you about what I think are some of the most exciting success stories uh, that I learned about at the summit. Cause there's, I'm going to learn a ton, even though I've been organizing it. Hopefully you'll be able to relax and actually enjoy the presentations. <laughs> well, <laughs> fingers crossed on that one. Right. We know how it works. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm sure there'll be some amazing stories coming out of this. Very encouraged by that. And so the registration is still open and still people can still come to the event, right? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I encourage people to go to earthoptimism.si.edu and registered for the event. Uh, we, we have, we want a very mixed audience of not only professionals, but also the general public who are interested and committed to conservation. So please do come. And I'll have links to everything on my show notes, but as a final thought, someone who's wavering is considering coming just one, one final pitch to them. How, if you, they want to come to this event, you will be inspired and empowered by the 200 stories of success that you'll be able to hear at the Earth Optimism Summit. Oh, nice and short and sweet. I love it. Okay. Well, this is great. I, I, I wish you luck. I, I will see you there, and, and I'm very excited for you, and, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It was a blast. All right, everyone. Thanks again. Bye. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Nancy Knowlton about the Earth Optimism Summit. 
Coming up next is Randy Olson, who's going to talk about these two events, what it means for the future of science. As you can tell this is a full episode of America Daps. I have a third guest on. This is my first time doing this. Two really amazing events, the Earth Optimism event and the March for Science. I had two speakers. And what I wanted to do was talk about these two things. And so what I've done is I've invited Randy Olson back on. Hey, Randy, how you doing? I am doing wonderful. Thanks for the invitation to come back, Doug. Well, Randy... Well, you know, you always have an open invitation to America Dash. I enjoy our conversations, and I still hear feedback on your your, your previous appearance in a good way. So T- today I had on the podcast two guests. I had Nancy Knowlton, and I had Valerie Aquino from the March for Science and for Earth Optimism. And so I wanted to bring you back on and talk about these two events, and I know you have a lot to say about this. And so I hope you're ready. Uh, you know, I want to get your thoughts on these things because th- this really is a, a unique time, I think. And so how similar are these two events? Yeah, it really, it is a unique moment here that I think people are going to have a hard time really realizing uh, how amazing it is till it actually happens, but both of these events. Um, I've got to thinking about them side by side. And, you know, in the simplest of all terms, it's kind of as profound as the difference between the head and the gut. Let me go into detail on that. In my first book, uh, Don't Be Such a Scientist, one of the central elements in that was called the Four Organs Theory. It was something I picked up from this intense acting class I had many years ago in Hollywood, um, this crazy acting teacher I tell about in the book. And she used to shout at us night after night that when it comes to acting, which, by the way, is not just similar but identical to communication in general, um, there are four organs that are important when you want to try and reach the big, broad audience. The head, the heart, the gut, and the sex organs. Um, the object in trying to reach the big audience is to come down out of your head with something more than just information, into your heart with emotion sometimes, into the gut with humor and intuition and every once in a while all the way down to sex appeal from sex organs the further down you can come from your head the bigger and broader the audience you will connect with and we see that right off the bat with these two events they're very different in that regard earth optimism is the head event basically very cerebral um extremely well thought out and planned i actually for a year and a half nancy knowlton the scientist from the smithsonian who's really kind of the person who conceived of the entire concept uh, I worked with her last summer on a video for, to help her present it to people. And it's been very well planned. Um, it's been organized really kind of from above. It was thought up by her and the other people at the Smithsonian, so it's got a whole institution behind it. As a result, it has a, it has a very clear narrative. They know exactly what they are there to do. They have a clear problem-solution dynamic. That's the way in which I define this word narrative. In, in my most recent book, Houston, We Have a Narrative, uh, I offered up this simple definition for the word narrative because everybody's talking about narratives nowadays. You hear it all through the news. Didn't didn't used to be the case. I define the word narrative as the series of events that occur in the search for the solution to a problem. And that's really kind of at the core of what I have to say about these two events. So she knows and they know crystal clear what their narrative is. Their problem is that um, Earth Day has been celebrated for 46 years now. And it's been a great and productive event, but it's had a tendency to focus primarily on all the bad news happening with the environment. And bad news and pessimism over time takes a toll. And eventually you get to a point where you really kind of have to shift the overall tone if you want keep people to, people to keep inspired. 
therefore, they put together this event that is going to be a three-day exercise focusing on 200 success stories. And I think people who go to it and sit through and hear these stories, I think they'll be amazed by the end of the three days. They'll walk out inspired and feeling more optimistic and thus the name Earth Optimism Summit. Um, so they know exactly what they're going to be doing there. And they know exactly who's going to be showing up. Uh, and as a matter of fact, um, it won't even matter if it rains. Uh, Valerie in her interview with you mentioned about the risk of rain for their event. Uh, it won't matter for Earth Optimism because they're in the Reagan building and, you know, it's just not going to be a factor. So everything's tightly controlled, very um, well thought out again, like what you get from the head. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the March for Science. And it is totally from the gut. It is incredibly spontaneous in this profession that is the epitome of non-spontaneity. I know I was a scientist for all those years. I achieved tenure as a professor of marine biology at the University of New Hampshire. And that was my single, I think, biggest frustration with my science career was just it's a profession that is very tightly controlled and rigid. You come up with good ideas, then you have to put them into the mill and try and get funding for them. And they tear them to pieces. And eventually, if you're lucky, a year or two later, you get the money and go do it. It just is never understood how to adopt the idea of spontaneity just doesn't work well in the science world traditionally as a result this event what's so spectacular about it as you got into in your interview with valerie is that it started from the bottom it's a group of scientists it started on reddit this was not big organizations coming together saying we need to do a march for science it was the troops basically saying we need to organize ourselves the scientists themselves as a result, they don't have a clear narrative. They, they're still, at this moment, not entirely sure what the heck this thing is about. And a month ago, I was kind of badgering them a little bit about that. You guys need to figure out your narrative. Actually, now that I've processed it, I don't know that that's a problem. I think that it's just fine for now that this first event is large and exuberant and full of energy, and they're just out there in the streets doing something. Um, and as a result... There's no telling what's going to happen on that day. They don't even know. They may have groups of people showing up protesting uh, Trump, all sorts of things. And it may rain and that may cause problems. Who knows? It's just completely spontaneous. And that is wonderful. So why do you think they got such an enormous response to the March for Science? Yeah, that was one of the clear things that came out in your discussion with Valerie is that they had hoped for, you know, a few thousand people. By the time the dust had settled, they have close to a million uh, people on their Facebook page and have spread all around the world. And that is, in its own right, extremely fascinating. I think that people are going to be analyzing this event for a long time to come. So sociologists and psychologists are going to be digging in, trying to figure out exactly what happened here. Uh, as I said, this is the most non-spontaneous profession. And there's something more to this response than just the idea that Trump's come in and he's made these kind of anti-science appointments and things of that sort. Yeah, that definitely was the catalyst that started people coming together. But I think what took it to this higher level was something much bigger, in part because, as she mentioned, the, the, it spread around the world internationally, a lot of places where Trump's not an issue at all. I think it's characteristic of the profession of science. Science is a profession that has very little leadership. I've complained about this for years and the science world has never figured out how to deal with probably the single biggest problem that the entire profession faces right now, which is the anti-science attacks. I made two movies on this, uh, Flock of Dodos and Sizzle. First one was about the attacks on evolution science. Second was the attacks on climate science. And there's been no leadership in this entire profession. All they've done is kind of rubbed their hands and agonized and whatever and said this is not fair for people to challenge 
their authority, but they haven't ever really come up with a plan on how to deal with it. Um, the people that are at the top, it's a profession led by committees. I know this. I've been on some of those committees. I have talked to these people bluntly about it. Uh, John Holdren, Stephen Chu, Jane Lubchenco, those were Obama's three top science picks. They're not really leaders. You know, they're good at facilitating and running these organizations, but they aren't these powerful voices that really can guide an entire profession in a direction. The same for Alan Leshner from AAAS formerly and Ralph Cicero at, at National Academy of Science. Uh, they're all facilitators, not leaders. The profession simply does not have um, leadership traditionally. It's run by committees. And that's been the problem with these attacks on science. The entire profession was attacked, and they didn't know how. In the wake of um, ClimateGate in 2009, there was no really formal response to it. There still isn't. They still can't figure out how to deal with these attacks on the heart and soul of science, which is information and facts. Um, and the, the real problem – so the question is – you know, if there's a narrative that's going to emerge, what's the what's the problem that's being addressed, and what's the journey that's going to uh, unfold to try and solve that problem? The science world doesn't even know how to identify this problem really clearly. Uh, but I think, in some ways, what the real problem is that the profession has not really advanced since the 1950s and 60s when it was really kind of formalized. In a lot of these societies and organizations, it's still very hierarchical. It is not known how to deal with this shift in our society with the internet and blogging and Twitter and all these sorts of things. It's really kind of been chasing the bus on a lot of that stuff and baffled by it a lot. Um, so there is this problem that they're not really equipped to address. And at the core of it is, um, you know, communication consists of two parts, substance and style. And here's what's going on today in our society is that we've become this information glutted and saturated society. And when you get too much subs, too much information, people can't process the substance side anymore. And they shift to style. And you see this more and more, people simply following voices that they find that they trust. They can't really process all the information and facts. So this shift from information, uh, from substance to style, is also the shift from information to narrative. That's why this narrative stuff is so important. So once upon a time, everybody cherished their facts and pieces of information. And suddenly, in the last couple of years, it's become really clear that the, your facts are your facts and my facts are my facts, and that's the general societal rule. I know that science says, you know, the, you're welcome to your opinions but not facts, but it's just gotten too noisy. And the result is this shift from everybody's bunches of facts to who can launch the more compelling narratives, who can put together these stories, these journeys of searching for solutions to problems that occur. And we have a president right now who is deeply – um, skilled at narrative dynamics. I tried for a year and a half to draw attention to this, and he pinpointed in his world what they felt was the single biggest problem, which is that we're not great again, or not great these days, and we need to get back to being great again. So he laid out a very clear narrative. Here's our problem. Now we're going to go on a journey to try and solve it, and that's where he is right now. You know, you're going to see this narrative not going away as he explores these events that are part of his search for the solution to this problem. Uh, science doesn't get narrative. That's what my whole book was about. Uh, Houston, we have a narrative, why science needs story. And as a result, they're kind of flummoxed by this fake news stuff and the info wars. And that is a problem. And the question is, how will they ever come around to addressing that? Well, I see both of these events as, as huge opportunities for science. And how do you see these two events having a lasting impact? Yeah, the, both of the events... The spokespeople are, and in, in your interviews, both with Nancy and with Valerie, um, they both talked in terms of this event not being a one-off. It's the beginning of a long process. 
And that's really great. It means that the people behind them are thinking in narrative terms. They're thinking about, we've got a problem here we want to address. So as I said, for the Earth Optimism Summit, they know exactly what their problem is. We've got to shift the tone of this environmental movement. We can't sit here and dwell on doom and gloom forever. There are ways to get ahead on this thing, which is to focus on these stories of success and get people inspired and go after solutions that actually work. So they got their act pretty well figured out. And furthermore, as she mentioned, what they're really focused on is the year 2020. That'll be the 50-year anniversary of Earth Day. And so this is sowing the seeds right now, just getting it going. And they'll be running it each each year. And you'll see this narrative progression as they're on their way on this journey towards something. Um, the Science March, as I said, they, they're still not sure right now what in the world it is that they're doing. And that is totally fine. Uh, you know, and thinking about it the other day, I thought back to the old... Uh, Buffalo Springfield song from the 60s. Uh, Something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. That's exactly what that was about back then in the 60s was this radical movement of all this youth pouring out in demonstrations and protests and still not entirely sure some of them. What are we what exactly are we doing here? What it is ain't exactly clear. I think that's characteristic of this um, science march. And it's something much bigger than just the threat of Trump. It's an entire profession that needs to move ahead in time. And, you know, to, just to go back to illustrate that problem of leadership, 1999, Michael Crichton, uh, the famed science fiction writer who was very savvy in the world of science, he gave the keynote address at the AAAS meeting in 99 uh, to an enormous audience. And his speech is online. And it's a tremendous speech. It's a huge exercise in problem solution. He goes through, I think, four of the major problems that the science world faces with the media world. And he offers up very clear and savvy solutions because that was a world that he knew so well. I know. I traded about 50 emails with him when I made my movie Sizzle. Uh, the guy was amazing. Uh, and here we are, what, 18 years later, nothing of what he offered up for advice was ever acted on. This is the problem with academics. This is a problem with the science world, the inability to listen. This is what my book, Don't Be Such a Scientist, was about. This is what improv training does for people. It helps them with this problem of not being able to listen well. It trains you to come down out of your head and actually open up your ears and hear what's going on. And as a result, it's kind of fascinating that this science march is arising, not from the heavily cerebral leadership at the top of the science world, but from these people down at the kind of grassroots level that are better at listening. And this is really, I think, a movement that's got a great deal more potential to listen and actually possibly start to change the world of science to move ahead in time and deal with this society that's changed all around it that it hasn't really confronted. Um, just as a parallel, when you take a look at what happened with the um, Occupy Wall Street movement in September 2011, I think it was, I was at dinner with some folks in Portland at this sustainability meeting and um, the Occupy Wall Street had been in the news for three days and everybody at the table started tearing into it saying, this is the stupidest thing. They're wasting their time. They have no clear action plan. They don't know what they're doing. And I defended them and said, look, no mass movement was ever started by intellectuals. You know, nobody started a mass movement with a bullet plan that was super clearly thought out. These things begin at the gut level, just like you're seeing with this, uh, this science march. And did the Occupy Wall Street movement ever amount to anything? Absolutely. Five years later, there was a presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, who almost managed to get the nomination. He wouldn't have been able to jumpstart that candidacy 
um, as he did, if not for what the Occupy Wall Street movement laid down. Namely, they inter- they identified the problem. They started the narrative process. They started the journey. They said the problem is the one percenters. We've got too much inequality in the distribution of wealth in this country. Something's got to happen for this. And he picked up on that and was able to advance the narrative a little bit further. They haven't solved it. They haven't gotten to that thing. It's going to get solved eventually. And if you read the editorial a couple months ago in the New York Times where they said that no society has ever solved this problem without massive violence, it's a little bit disturbing. But the fact is they're on this narrative journey. They know what the problem is there. And that is why, you know, these things begin in this vague form. And it's too easy to just – and that's what you get the really academic people come in and say, I don't see exactly how they're going to do everything. Well, of course not. That has to evolve over time. That's the narrative process. So I think that if I had to bring it down then, it's super clear what the earth optimism singular problem is, this need to shift from pessimism to optimism. The more fascinating, (laughs) mysterious problem is what's going on with the science march. And if you ask me, I think it's all about this problem of leadership in the science world and dealing with an environment that's changed around it, and it hasn't figured out yet how to deal with that. So I know there's going to be a lot of analysis after it's done, but I think it's the best thing. The final chapter of my book, Don't Be Such a Scientist, was titled Be the Voice of Science, and it was all about the need to be a little more spontaneous and get out there and actually do things. And so I'm just thrilled the idea that this thing is happening on its own the way it has. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Well, thanks, Randy. And, and I hope people that get a chance to listen to this, they, they, they do think that this march is actually an opportunity. That they look at the long game. So it's not you're showing up and holding up a sign, but what does this really represent? I think that's actually really exciting. Randy, uh, again, thanks for coming on on such short notice. And what I'd like to do is maybe get you on. I'm not sure maybe what the right time frame is, but a month, a couple months after the march and get your thoughts and potentially even some recommendations from you on maybe what are some next steps. And you might have some more clarity, too, after seeing what had happened at the march. As you know, when it comes to America Adapts and Doug Parsons, I am always available. (laughs) (laughs) even when you're on surf trips that's exactly Uh, right (laughs) all right on that note thanks again randy and everybody out there thanks for listening in all right thanks doug see you hey everyone that is a wrap what an exciting earth day themed episode thanks to valerie aquino dr nancy nolson and randy olson for coming on What an exciting time we live in. The March for Science is going to be this huge event. I'm very excited. I'll be going to that. And thanks to Valerie coming on to explain what's going to happen there and the history of that. And also, I'm very excited about this Earth Optimism Summit. We don't focus on the positives enough. And so, Nancy, explain where, where that all came from. So I'm excited to actually attend that event, too. And, of course, Randy Olson came on to explain what this all means. This March for Science is a really big deal, and I think Randy did a great job explaining the significance of it all. And even though we don't know where it's headed, this is a good sign. We need to stick up for science, and we need to talk about the positive things going out there because that's how we're going to get the public more interested in what we do. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you are a new listener, you know, you if you listen to on, on your iPhone, go to iTunes and look for America Daps and just subscribe. Also, please consider writing your reviews to the podcast. Podcasters love when they get reviews. Go there. Even if you just do the star thing and you don't write anything, that's that's appreciated. Also, there's that Facebook page and a Facebook group. Just search America Daps. Please join. We have some interesting conversations in the group. And if you want to tweet me, I'm at USA Adapts. 
please. I love when people tweet me and I'll retweet you and you know how it is. It's always exciting to get those things. Don't forget um, to visit the website too at americaadapts.org and learn a little bit more about me and the podcast. And you can see information about previous podcast guests. And let's see any other thing. Like I said, upcoming guests next week, Bill McKibben's coming out. And then we have Judge Alice Hill from the National Security Council during the Obama administration. We have Andrew Lewin from Speak Up for Blue, a ocean conservation podcast. And we have, uh, I like, I guess I can go ahead and announce, you know, I've, I've sort of talked about is coming up with a new segment too called Australia Daps, where we are going to talk. Well, actually, we have a new host, and I'll get into more detail later about that, but I'm excited about uh, th that coming out soon. And on that note, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for joining in, and again, consider joining the march, and there's all those satellite locations. Visit the website, and also consider going to the uh, Earth Optimism Summit. It's going to be a fantastic day with a lot of great speakers talking about all the positive things happening out there. So on that note, this is America Adapts. 